Hello, you're listening to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, presented by Brandon Elliott. This show will be going over all aspects of real estate investing and is intended to educate, motivate, and prepare you to take action on your first or next real estate investment. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Brandon Elliott. I'm excited today. We have a special guest in the house in Cleveland, Ohio, investing, you know, I wouldn't say long, long distance, but states away, which is still long enough, right? It's it's not in our comfort zone of our backyard. Over in Florida, having a private equity fund and really focusing on value-add investments, has been investing himself since 97 and having over 250 investors, over 35 million in their fund and being able to get strong returns for their investors and being able to make a big impact along the way, self-managing everything that they are really taking down together and having a lot of success towards that. We'll talk about it here today, first and foremost, but there's also a couple rules that you are not going to want to miss out. You're going to want to take notes like I am today and really be able to pour in because it could be that pivotal moment that really makes the difference in where you are going and the projection of how to get the strongest ROI, the best bang for your buck securely without any risk to a certain degree, right? There's always risk in investing, but we're going to simplify it today. So with that all being said, Ken, what is going on, my friend? How are you today? I am doing great. Looking forward to this, Brandon. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to jump on with us. Talk to me. For anybody out there that doesn't know who you are, where you're from, what you're up to, do you mind just giving that 30,000 foot view for us? Yeah, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, where Max Klinger came from. I got me undergrad from University of Toledo, moved to Cleveland, got my master's degree from Case Western Reserve while I was working for a bank as a commercial lender, spent five years as a commercial lender. And it was then while I was at Case that I realized, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I wanted to be a CPA. So I went to work for Deloitte for seven years, spent seven years there, did a lot of tax work, a lot of M&A work. Got to really understand the private equity model. And as it turned out, the Cleveland office of uh, Deloitte had a huge real estate practice. And it was there that I decided I needed to do real estate. And the reason that what what happened to me, I was with my daughter one night, three in the morning. She was really young. I did her night feeding. That was the problem. That was my time with my daughter while I was at Deloitte. 80 hour a week, think about CPAs, busy season. And my quality time, my daughter was three o'clock in the morning. I mean, it was fun. It was awesome. But I started to realize, man, that's not, I, I need more than that. I didn't create a family so I could see them at three in the morning. So I said, I got to fix this. So I dove into the real estate world. Back then, there weren't cool podcasts like this to figure this stuff out. It was uh, go to old local association meetings and all that stuff. It was painful. It took me a year and a half. But I will tell you that I was able to buy three small apartment buildings and sold them three years later and made half a million bucks. I was like, oh, oh my God, that blew my mind. I was like, wait yeah. a minute, wait, whoa, 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 time out. All right. So I came up with this plan. I took the action I and I implemented this plan. And now I just proved that it worked because I made more money on the side than I did the whole time as a Deloitte. I'm like, this is crazy. What, what, what am I doing? So that is what got me headed in the real estate direction. And I've not looked back since. I love it. And so you went through the 2007, 2008 crash. How was that on you? And and looking around, did you see it coming? You know, how, how did it feel? Yeah going through the emotions during that time? Yeah. As it turns out, I did see it coming and I'm not the only one that saw it coming. It, it's just the the things that were happening, you just knew. 
they did not make sense. It felt like I was watching the world in slow motion because I would look at CNBC every day. I watched the banks fail. I watched the stress test. I watched AIG fail. I understood why. Man, I will tell you, going through those kinds of cycles teach you so much about how to operate in a really tough environment, how to protect yourself against risk going forward. I mean, it really created, yeah, we're in the real estate business, but that whole financial crisis was a lot about financial engineering. And you really had to focus on that. I, you know, you bring all that stuff forward now, you know, many, many years later. And those things, those lessons that I learned then have really been uh, in large part responsible for all the things that we did now to protect ourselves against crazy rising interest rates and everything else that we've experienced right now. You know, all of our properties are doing great. But it, it's in large part because it's a lot of those lessons that I learned over that long period of time. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Were you affected in any way? We did not. No, we did not lose a penny. We've never lost a penny of investor money. We did some third-party management. We watched some people would come to us, hey, can you save us? I mean, we would try, but at some point it's too far yeah. gone and, yeah. and you can't. So, you know, we did watch people fail. We watched some really good people fail, real honest people, hardworking people fail. And yeah. and it just because they made certain mistakes and it was mostly around financial engineering. It really was. If, if your debt matured at the wrong time and you had no way out to refinance it, you were toast. And yeah. that's what we watch happen. So talk to me, when it comes down to the last few years, so, you know, how did the fund kind of like come into fruition and how many people have you partnered up with to make this possible? Yeah. So I've never really had more than one partner in a deal. I'm just not a fan of partner GP pools with six, eight, 10, 12 people. I, I just don't like that model. So it's always been me, mostly me. I've always controlled every deal that we've done. We're in Florida. And so we started syndicating, right? Syndicating. So you go find the deal, then you go out and try to raise the money. The problem is, think about Florida. It's a really, really competitive buying environment. And so we had to differentiate ourselves. And we did, but usually had to do a price. I thought, you know, this is driving me nuts. Like, I don't want to use price as my only way to differentiate ourselves. I understood the private equity model. That means rather than go find the deal, then raise the money, we flip that around. You go raise the money, then go find the deal. And was I right? It absolutely differentiated us from the rest of the group. And it made it much easier to get deals. Our last three deals in our last fund, the first deal never saw the market and the other two, we were not the highest bidder. It was that certainty of close. It was that we already raised the equity. It was all of those things combined, of course, with our experience and our reputation that allowed us to get those deals and, you know, carry that forward now. You know, why are our deals doing well now? It's because of the discipline that we use, you know, we know that we need a lot of upside in our deals. We don't just buy and, you know, plan on 2% annual increases. I mean, that just doesn't work. So that is why we got to the fund model from syndication and that disciplined business approach, the disciplined approach to underwriting is what really has kept us safe through the process. Love that. And so, so your model was always raise the capital first, find the deal second, and it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always okay. that way. We started off as syndicators. We okay. did it, you know, our first few deals in Florida. We found the deal, then raised the money. And it wasn't too hard to, equity likes Florida, right? Because it's yeah. growing and it continues to grow. Sure. So it was hard, but it's still really, really stressful. I mean, yeah. you've got a very short window to raise a whole lot of money. And if you don't, man, you're, it's a stressful. It'll put a lot of hair on, uh, a gray hair on your head. So- 
we flipped to that private equity model probably four or five years ago because, but really out of a necessity, we're tired of not getting deals. We That certainty of close was so important to the market that as soon as we made that switch, the brokers responded exponentially. I mean, they were, now they had a story. I have a buyer. He's already raised the money. He's not going to take you down the road and retrade you and do this and do that. And it got us a lot of deals. That Ken, educate me on this because I'm very interested in setting up funds, you know, sometime in the future for myself, but sure. also just the understanding and the benefits behind it. Is setting up a fund, you can basically, are you just doing soft commitments with the investors or they actually send in the money and have it sit there? Are you paying out the day that it hits? Are they occurring yeah. interest naturally or how does that work? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to do it. Yeah. Here's what I didn't want to do. What I didn't want to do is have you send me your money and it sits in my bank account because I don't like buying under duress. I don't want to have this gun to my head to try to buy because that tends to get people to make bad decisions. So if you sign up with our fund, you sign a legal document. I mean, you sign the subscription agreement. You've committed X, our minimum is 100,000. And, you know, we ask you, don't commit everything you got because we're going to be disciplined about what we buy. And so you have this commitment. And when we call the capital, you'll send. And, you know, the first time I did this, I thought there's going to be people that flake. Not one person flakes. Not one. Not one has. So then they send me their money and then I deploy it. And then they, you know, that's when their preferred return would start accruing and so on. So I just didn't want to have millions and millions of dollars sitting in my bank account. Oh, people breathing down my neck. I need a deal. I need a deal. Why you're holding my money. And yeah, you know, it's some, you know, you just, it's just a bad situation for everybody, for us. Cause I, I feel the pressure to buy and for them because they're annoyed that it's taken me so long to find a deal. And nobody broke their commitment. Now one person. Huge, that's a big deal. I love that. Yeah. Uh, because just over time, life happens, things happen. People start changing their minds, buyers, remorse, like all types of things, God forbid. So that's, that's definitely awesome. And so you're not taking any of the capital until you actually find a deal, but you are getting the commitment beforehand. That's correct. Yep. I love. Yeah, that. I think that's the fairest, smartest way to do it. I agree. I mean, you have to do it that way, but that's how I like to do it. Yeah, I love that model. I think it's just the safest on both ends. It makes you feel less stressed out, and and you have commitments. You you're not pressured into things like you said. You don't have the gun to your head to like, hey, I got to do something. It's it's adding up every day. So mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. As um, soon as you put yourself in that stressful situation, human tendency is you're going to start stretching. Yeah. You just are. And I don't want to stretch. Make mistakes. I just yep. don't want to do that. And we see it day in and day out. I mean, there's there's people out there making silly mistakes, especially in the market that we're in. And, and we'll talk about that, you know, towards the end of this, because mm-hmm. you've already gone through 2007, 2008. You, God bless you, you know, didn't lose your shirt like a lot of other Americans have. So and you saw it coming. So I want to get your feedback towards the end of you know what what you think is happening now and in the future. Of course, nobody has that crystal ball, but you did mention a lot of we, 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 you mentioned, which is awesome because there's no I in team, right? <laughs> like it would be amazing if we were all just Superman and like could do all these amazing things, yeah, but that yeah. that's not the case. So Never obviously is. you have a team in place. You did mention self-managed you know, and that really sets you apart from a lot of others out there and really takes full accountability and responsibility over your success, right? You know, if it's, if it's meant to be, it's up to me. 
And um, I like that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that's a good. I like that. You're <laughs> you're exactly right. So you know, what does the team look like? What was the idea behind taking it all internal and self managing these projects? Yeah. So like just about everything with me, it all happens naturally for a reason, right? I didn't set it up. So the company started out in Cleveland back in 1997. Sure. And so if you know anything about Cleveland, most people don't say, hey, I have a deal in Cleveland and and the, everybody beats down the door to invest in Cleveland because that's just not the reputation it has. So it grew up as an owner operator town. So So it just, you just managed your own stuff. That's just what you did though. We're not 50 management companies like there are in places like Florida. So uh, it just started naturally, right? And then as you're growing any business over the time, what I would do is we would run into a problem. I would fix the problem. I would try to figure out why did it happen? How can I fix it systemically, document the solution, move on? And over 25, 26 years, you start to solve a lot of problems. Your processes get really well-defined. Every, you know, we're constantly changing and now, uh, you know, it's hard for me to think that I'm going to find, I'm sure there's somebody out there that's more efficient. I don't want to sound arrogant, but I mean, we've really nailed these things down to a really, you know, really uh, careful planning and we're constantly innovating. So now in order for me to outsource this management, I would have to find someone that I think actually cared more than me, was more pay- paying attention to the details, wanted to innovate more than me. See, I, that, you're shaking your head no, and you, I'm in, not happening. in complete agreement with you. Yeah. The, the funny thing about this business is I would dare you to tell me what business you would be willing to start or buy and then hire someone or a company to run every single aspect of it, and all they do is send you financials. Like, you, you just wouldn't do it. A machine company, a technology, nobody. Nobody has ever said, oh, I'd do that. But guess what they do in the apartment world? They do it every single day. It is because they lose sight of the fact that of running an apartment community, 100, 200, 300 units, it's a business. It's no different than any other business. So it seems it defies logic to me that you would want to get into a business that you don't want to actually run. I mean, I trust me, it sucks sometimes running a, you know, a property management company, but you know, people give us their money and they want us to really nail it for them. Yeah. Well, I should be really good at what we do. That's how I view it. And I just think that is one of our, you know, differentiators for sure, because we're so in touch with what's happening on the ground. We're much more nimble than, than other people are. Because as soon as you insult, insert a third-party manager in there, what happens? Now, I'm not going to say that third-party managers are bad, but you get this information block because the third-party managers, you know, they're not going to share everything. Because some of those things might make them look bad, right? But because they're dealing with people. And and the fact is, those things are happening, but they don't want you, you know, there's just suddenly now you're getting distorted information and it just mucks up the water. So, so at this I, point, I you can imagine this scenario. Yeah. At this point, you have a well-oiled machine, basically. How many people are working in the business for the company? And About 45, 45. And, and that's that's all in Florida? Yeah, well, there's some in our back office here in Cleveland, maybe six or seven here. Okay. But most of awesome. what we do, I mean, most of the work is done out in the, you know, out at the properties because okay. that's, and then, that's what we do. And what does that consist of? I, I assume, you know, assistant work, office work, uh, filling. Are you talking about in Cleveland? Uh, well, I guess in, in both of the offices. Yeah. So in Cleveland, I mean, we have an investor relations person. We have a financial analyst. We have 
a regional manager, we have a controller, we have an administrative person, we have me. Out in the field, we have regional managers who report to them would be property managers and leasing people and maintenance people. So our regional managers run our properties and, you know, execute on the business plan. And, you know, I, I actually meet with them regularly just to get, just to keep that feedback loop going. And so that that's how we're structured. And have you taken in-house, you know, handyman and, and, and construction contracts? Yeah, well, it depends on what kind of construction. So unit turns, we did do ourselves. We'll use some outside vendors to do flooring and paint and things like that. Okay. If we're doing a major project like roof, we're going to outsource that because, I mean, you know, that's a big project. We'll, yep. we'll hire a contractor to do that. But you know, everything else we do internally, every work order we fix, you know, we do those things ourselves. We hire maintenance maintenance guys and gals that are talented, HVAC certified, and, you know, they can take care of bits in this. Nice. Yeah, I love it. And so the value add that you guys focus on, you know, you're buying distressed properties, you're doing the full renovation on it, I assume, and then doing refis or fix and flips or how, how did those? Yeah. I believe your, your turnaround time is about three to five years for your investors, correct? Yeah. So uh, we don't necessarily look for distressed properties. We're looking, I think a better word to describe it is underperforming. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a low, something that you can increase and get it to yeah, flow better. Yeah. In our world, it's all about NOI. It's all about net operating income. So usually our growth in our business comes from moving rents. So we look at an asset, market matters a lot to us, diversity of employment, all that stuff. And then we just, we just go and figure out what is it that we need to do to this property to make it perform better, make it operate in the next tier up in terms of competition. Sometimes yep. it, we do nothing, right? Sometimes it's a lot of exterior improvement. It just depends on the property. But yep. somehow we're creating value because in our world, if we raise $10 more rent, that generally falls to the bottom line, which when you cap it out, just turns out to be a ridiculous amount of uh, value add, right? Yes. Addition to the value. So that's Makes what sense. we do. So we generally, when you think about our business model from 30,000 feet, we buy an underperforming asset, we prove the business model, we lease them for the next guy or gal because they have to have a reason to buy it. And then we move up yeah. and we try yep. to not outlive our improvements. Yeah. I like that. And how many deals are you guys taking down per year currently? Not enough. I mean, over the last year, we have not, it's been literally a year since we found a deal. And it's just because, remember that discipline thing that we talked about? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, we're not going to go pay a four cap when interest rates are at six and a half. I mean, you, you can't do that. It doesn't work. Yep. It yep. doesn't work. So I'm thrilled to tell you that the gap is slowing. It's, it's yep. narrowing between buyers and sellers. It was getting much narrower until this week when the, the treasuries blew out. You know, I don't know when this will air, but, you know, the treasuries blew out basically this week, 20, 30 basis points. I mean, that matters when you're doing a 30, $40 million deal. So I guess let's just talk about the market for a second. You know, <laughs> what are you predicting? What What do you think is going to happen with interest rates? What do you think is going to happen with the market, the Fed? You know, it's, it's kind of weird times we're living in, definitely different to say the least. And there's a lot of fear out there. The fear index is high, but the ignorance is a whole nother level as well. And it's one of those things that all the signs are pointing to a devastation. But at the same time, there's barely any supply, right? There's there's plenty of properties. There's plenty of 
people that have refied about 70% of Americans refied in the last several years. So a lot of, a lot of equity, a lot of great interest rates when the interest rates currently on the market are way higher. So there is opportunity and it just comes down to that there's not enough on the market. So what do you think about the market currently and where we're going? Yeah. So if you're talking about the single family home market and we haven't, and I don't think you are, that's not getting crushed right now because people are, they're happy with their 4% loans. And unless they need to move, they're probably, they don't want to give that rate up and I don't blame them. Right. Yeah. So that's going to take some time. You're not going to see the level of pain there unless we have a severe recession and everybody starts losing their jobs. I think the biggest risk to this market right now, it's in the income producing properties. It's in the office right? Office is going to struggle because they've got lower occupancy just because people are pulling back their square footages because more people are being working from home or working hybrid schedules. But in the multifamily world, anything that was bought in the last two to three years was on a bridge loan because rents were moving. So you did your bridge loan with the hopes that you would implement your business plan and then take, you know, refinance it out in three years. Well, and then there's a third component of the market that has owned for a long time, they're good properties. You said there's no supply of properties to buy. Those people that don't have to sell, they're not selling right now because they don't have to. They don't They don't have a compelling reason. There are an enormous number of properties coming on the market that are comprised of two things. Number one, they're developers who developed and their construction loans are coming due. So you know, their business plan was always to sell. There's a lot of that coming out. And the other thing that's coming out is people who had these bridge loans um, and did not, ex- you know, when they have to reset these rates, you know, they, if they're in that bridge product still, I mean, the rates are going from a protected four to eight. I mean, it's just absurd. Yeah. The, nobody, nobody could have predicted that. Nobody would have assumed yeah. that even if they bought the insurance and paid the extra, you know, uh, for the, for the locked rate, it just wouldn't, nobody's expecting that. Yeah. Well, they expire is what's happening is those are expiring. So that is going to make a lot of distressed sellers, right? So what a lot of those people should have done, but they didn't, I don't know why, uh, we had a bridge loan. And what we did was we said, all right, every time Ken starts a loan application or puts an LOI in, rates go up. I said, I'm tired of this nonsense. We ordered all our third parties and put them on the shelf because they're good for a few months. And then we just waited for, you know, rates are bouncing around. Well, for example, in our Tallahassee deal, we were able to lock in 528 for seven years. 528 is like, wow, that's an awesome rate, right? We actually, I never am able to nail the bottom on rates, but we did, right? Why did we do that? Because we changed, it became more of a financial engineering problem, right? I need to make sure, and when I did that, I st- I was only a year into a bridge loan. People are thinking, why are you doing this now? I mean, you're not even close to maturity. Why? Because I'm risk averse. I know that we don't know what's going to happen. And it is more important to me to make sure that we're locked down and, and in good shape than to gamble and say, oh, darn, I refinanced early. Okay, I'll take that risk. Okay, yeah. I, I'll be much happier with that. So what's happening now is there are properties to buy. You have to be a strong buyer because interest rates are so volatile that they sure. won't award you the deal. There's a lot of brokers willing to take on listings where sellers are just fishing. They're just trying to see if some sucker out there will pay some close to what they're asking and they're not real sellers. That's going on driving the brokers nuts, but they're less, they're more willing to accept those listings because what else do they have to do? 
right? If they're able to get something done, hey, that's good for them. So this is a very interesting time. You're right. There's a lot of stress in the market. I personally think the Fed went up too fast, too far too fast. And I just think to, to expect the system to respond that quickly is just absurd. It's the reason why I just read this yesterday. Bank of America has $1.5 billion in unrealized losses sitting on their balance sheet that they don't have to mark to market because the tre- those are treasuries that went down in value because these rates went up. And there are financial institutions sitting everywhere with these problems. Oh, in addition everyone. to that, in addition to that, here's here's the problem. They're holding a bunch of loans that are upside down because the property didn't execute as well as it needed to to generate the cash flow to afford the new rent, the new yeah. interest rates, right? That goes back to buying discipline and executing on the business model. If you bought discipline, you knew you had upside and you got it done, you could refinance your way out of this and be fine. But if you slipped up on execution, if you made a mistake on upside, if you gambled too much because you didn't understand the financial engineering risk return thing, you're kind of screwed. So I think there's a lot of loans out there that they're going to go back to banks. And I feel like we're in slow motion watching ourselves inch toward the cliff. And when all these loans hit, they will hit at once because they were all made at once. We're talking when I say at once, I'm talking about within an 18 month period. Yes. And I think what happens, I've always seen the Fed for the last 25 years, they're always slow to do something and late to stop doing something, right? They're always a little behind. And it's because they look at the rearview mirror. Most of their data is in the rearview mirror. And I think that's happening again. So I think we're in for a rough time. But I will tell you that if I can lock something down at a six cap in Florida, oh, yeah. I'm take it all oh, yeah. day long. That's right. I love that. And are you anticipating that the the Fed may get their stuff together and, and start looking at the future maybe and, and thinking about lowering interest rates? What what do you think the next, I guess, 12 to 18 months look yeah. like? Yeah. yeah. Just remember, I, I have no clue what's really yeah, going to no, happen. Nobody's I, got the crystal ball. I will yeah, hold you to yeah, it. And yeah, all the listeners, yeah. please... Fresh disclosure. We're not lawyers. We're not, uh, you know, like don't don't put the blame on us if uh, you uh, do something crazy with your money. We're just giving our two cents here. That's right. That's one man's opinion, and uh, I'm barely qualified to to, to offer it. But yeah. what I think, what I see in the past is we need a lot of heavy heart headlines, right? And those headlines are going to be financial institution failures. We've got an election coming up, and we've we're going to see some of these loans start to go bad. It's the culmination of those things that are going to create a bunch of bad headlines that is going to force the Fed to reverse course. I'm kind of surprised they're still holding this tight with an election coming. We're we're a little over a year away from election, I think. And so usually when that happens, you know, the party in power is going to push really hard to try to soften things a little bit. So I think that third quarter of next year, we're going to start seeing some relief. The economists that I follow kind of follows, but, you know, Jerome Powell's supposed to speak today. And if he, and if he comes out with a very, you know, we're going to stay higher for longer and we might even go up again by the end of the year, the market's going to freak out, right? Yep. It's the reason treasuries hit 5% yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's, it's a wild, wild times we are in right now, uh, but you couldn't have said Those better. are the best times to buy. Just listen yes, to Buffett. Run yeah. into the fire. Don't run out. 
That's right. That's so good. I love that. And keep that in mind, guys. Now, you mentioned prior to us talking that there's four rules that you like to give to all individuals that are trying to become a real estate investor, trying to put their money to work, be the bank, be, you know, be the safest spot, which is, you know, there's no guarantees when it comes down to investing for anything, but being the bank, you can get more protection in some cases. So what does it look like for, you know, individuals that want to actually put their money to work and force key component steps to be able to set them up with a safer, stronger return? Yeah. So even having access to what we do and raising the money the way we do and getting the investors into our deals didn't yeah. exist before the Jobs Act, right? It really, it wasn't really mainstream. And since then, it is becoming more and more mainstream. Here's the problem. With any new industry, people don't know how to tackle it, right? So now we have a we have a bunch of sponsors looking for money and we have a bunch of investors trying to figure out, okay, who should I invest with? Yeah. Is this guy a good guy? Is this guy a good guy? They don't know because they're all exempt. They're not being, that we're not, you know, none of these placements have been looked at by the SEC because they're all exempt. So I, over time, I said, you know what? If you follow these four rules as a passive investor, I think you're going to put yourself in a pretty good spot. And rule number one is you got to look for experience. For all the things that we have talked about today, and it's been a lot of stuff, yeah. this experience is going to be what's going to help that sponsor, that investment firm firm deal with whatever's coming next, right? Because you got to have some experience and you got to know the senior management team that you've invested with has the capability of figuring this stuff out because they have a lot to draw on. Number two, I want them to have a good track record, not just a track record of acquiring properties, but I want them to have a track record of turning full cycle. I did it. I implemented, I sold, we made lots of money. Yes. Right. You can't argue with that. And the longer you can get that track record, the better, because anybody that's been in this business the last 10 years, mostly if you had a heartbeat, you can figure out how to make money in this business. It wasn't that hard. You just rode the wave up. But over the long run, you need people that have a good track record, like maybe in Cleveland, right? It's not the easiest market to make money in, right? So track records, number two. Number three, I want you to focus on transparency. This is a little bit harder because before you go in, you don't understand how transparent that sponsor is going to be with you. But I'll give you an example. We, well, tonight we're doing, a, I, I know this will air later, but you know, every once a month we do what's called a real deal webinar where I, I tell people exactly what's happening on our properties. What's our occupancy? What's our insurance cost? All that kind of stuff. So that's transparency. We send them up quarterly reports along with a narrative about exactly what's happening at the property. I think that's critical. Now you can figure that out up front by how willing they are to show you their projections, answer your questions about their projections, and they should be able to tell you. If they want you to give them their money, they should be able to tell you what every number is in that projection, why it's there, and how did they come up with it, right? That level of transparency, I think, is critical. And then the last one, you need to make sure that they put you first as the investor, right? And this is a little harder, but you got to read the terms of the deal. You got to read the private placement memorandum. And basically what you're looking for Ask yourself this question, is it possible for the sponsor to do really well and me as an investor to not do well? If the answer to that question is, yeah, you probably shouldn't invest with them, right? Because you need alignment. You want the sponsor to do well along with you, not in front of you, right? You want that alignment. That's super important. And it's super important that the sponsor, don't be afraid to allow a sponsor to make money because this is a lot of work, what we do. And if the sponsor's not making any money, 
They're not, they're not put, incentivized. Yeah. They're not going to put their attention on it and you're going to have a problem. So those four rules, track re- experience, track record, transparency, and then putting you first. Those are the four rules that I think if you follow them and then if you look at deals that have gone bad, usually one of those four rules was broken. Yeah. Now, when it comes down to number two, track record, having a good track record is great. The longer, the better, of course. But, you know, do you recommend the individual that goes through the tough times to loses their shirt on a deal or two and then can live through those experiences and having the full transparency? You know, do you still encourage individuals that say, hey, I respect that this person is fully transparent, said why they lost in this deal, how it was on them and how they're not going to allow it to happen again? Yeah. So uh, to answer your question, yes, I think that's important. You know, not everybody is going to be perfect. I mean, that's just the fact of life. Here's what's way worse than that. The guy or gal hides that part of their track record. Oh my gosh, yes. That's a that's big not, now you've got a trust issue. Now you've got integrity. You have yeah. a lot of issues there. So, you know, we had our entire track record, 26 years. It was horribly painful, vetted by Verivest. They don't do it anymore, but they did. And our full our entire track record as yeah. vetted by them is on their website for you, the world to see so that they know, right? And some deals made a whole lot of money. Some deals made not as much money, right? Sure. We never lost any investor money, but it's important. And I want you to ask me that question. Hey, what happened on that deal? You didn't hit you know, 30% annual returns. What happened? Well, I'll tell you exactly what happened. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Nothing at all. I think the transparency is more important than you know, you're you're gonna it's gonna be really hard to find sponsors that have never made a mistake. I mean, it just is. Yeah, it, it, life happens, especially in the market that we're in right now. Nobody in their grandmother anticipated or expected what the feds would do to crank up these rates, how fast they did so many times over back to back, which is you know, so it's some tough times right now. But what like you'll said. find is the longer the experience, yep. the more people see back in 07, 08, I know it was about financial engineering. I know that debt maturities, that interest rate management, yep. I know that stuff is critical. And one of my partners said to me a long time ago, Ken, we are not in the interest rate game. We are in the real estate game. That's right. Nail that interest rate down, get that risk off the table. Because that is not our expertise. Our expertise is real estate, and they're not wrong. That's that's how you want to look at it. So, you know, just the more experience you can have with that sponsor group, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, that that is great for key components that every everybody should really use as the the four main rules to not lose your shirt and make sure that you're investing in the right partnerships. Ken, when it comes down to your fund, is it more of a debt? type of fun or is it uh, equity as well and what is it's all it's all equity equity yeah it's all yeah 70 30 no 80 20 80 20 okay yeah our current our current fund has a six percent preferred return so you get all your capital back you get your preferred return then we split 80 20 cool i love it yeah that's awesome and then so the six percent preferred that's regardless that's just six percent annualized per year yeah first of all it's not guaranteed i gotta say that because it's not technically guaranteed But you get the first 6%. That's how I want you to think about it. Yep. So let's say we distributed 6%. We're even, right? If we distributed yep. nothing that quarter, well, then we owe you 6% for that quarter, right? Or, or one quarter of 6%, right? Gotcha. So it is, it's called cumulative, but not guaranteed is what it's oh. called, is what you're looking for in an offering memorandum. I love that. And then you do payouts quarterly? We do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Is that typical or, you know, I know some people do monthly, which just sounds like a headache. And then others, (laughs) you got to really have your, your, uh, your organization together to have all the books and everything else up to date on, on a, uh, tight ship. (laughs) Yeah. You you can do it monthly. We chose not to because our fee structure, I mean, we only charge a one and a half percent asset management fee, not to. We only charge a 1% acquisition fee, not two or three or four. Some people do, right? So I want to keep the fees as low as possible. And I've never had anybody complain that they wanted monthly. And and you're right. I mean, I'm a CPA by background. I just know that in order to that, now you're creating just a machine that has to just keep churning, right? And uh, yeah. I don't know that we need to incur that cost as much because in you know, in the end, whatever costs I incur, I, I have to figure out how to make money doing what we do. So it ends up coming out of the investor pocket. And yeah. uh, so that's that's why we do it quarterly. But there are a few out there doing it monthly. I just, it's a lot of work, man, because you, you really got to manage your cash carefully on a monthly basis because you, you just do. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Ken, man, I appreciate your time greatly. I just feel like this is a wealth of knowledge and I appreciate you for allowing me to pick your brain a bunch today, but also to really serve, taking the time to serve all of our listeners. How could we get a hold of you, any of the listeners, to be able to really get more information about your firm as well as get a little bit of time from you in the future, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah. KRIpartners.com slash invest. So it's easy. Partners. That's plural.com slash invest. And it'll give you, you'll have access to our track record, everything you could want to see, all the documents. And uh, hopefully you'll, uh, you know, you'll want to set up a time with me because you're able to do that right, right from that page. I love that. Awesome. Well, again, it was a wealth of knowledge. I appreciate you greatly. Uh, guys, you definitely want to reach out to Ken. Oh, you know, he's been doing this with a very long, successful track record, which is incredible. Do your own due diligence, but incredible individual to just be able to chat with and to see what he's working on and what's coming up in the pipeline that's uh, conservative and still being able to make strong returns for investors. So if you guys want to get a hold of me, you can always do so on Instagram. It's Brandon Elliott Investments. Check out on Instagram as well, Credit Council Elite. It's our new page. So uh, show some love on there and follow us on there. We'll be sending some new content here very soon and shortly. Um, if you want to get a hold of me on facebook.com forward slash Brandon Elliott Investor. And then as always, if you have not already hit that subscribe button to Ready, Set, Go Real Estate Investing Podcast, what are you waiting for? Now is the time. Stop what you're doing. Hit that subscribe button. You'll get the newest notification every Monday. Leave that five-star review after listening to a few episodes. Give us feedback. Good, bad, indifferent, ugly, anything in between. Would love to hear what you guys are feeling about the podcast and who we should have on next. It means the world to us. And at the end of the day, we are really just geared towards educating, motivating, and preparing you to take action in real estate to show you the power behind it and how it really changed my life and Ken's. And uh, by all means, if you have not already checked out creditcounselelite.com just to get a second opinion and understanding how you can get up to 500000 in the next 30 days to 90 days and actually be able to get up to 500,000 every six months at 0% interest so that you can jump into real estate, grow, scale your business, hire on your competition, whatever it may be. Remember, it's 0% interest up to 24 months. And we can show you how at creditcounselelite.com. That's www.creditcounselelite.com. Get a bunch of stacks of these 0% interest, manage it properly, not buying the Gucci sweatshirt for 20000 buying assets 
with well safe risk returns. So uh, check out creditcounselingelite.com. Would be honored to jump on a call with you and and uh, give you more info. With that being said, we'll see you on the next episode. Till next time, God bless. Ken, appreciate you as always. We'll see you next Thank time. You. This has been another episode of Ready, Set, Go! Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Brandon Elliott. For more information, please visit BrandonElliottInvestments.com. Also, please don't forget to like, share, and leave a comment below. Thanks again for joining. 